Welcome back to Cyber Profits. This time, we are going to go to a new topic. But as you know, this is a podcast made for you and only for you. That is about prophesizing the future of technology. This time, we're going to speak about biocomputing. With me is Edgar Regalado, who is our co-host for this time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season two of Cyber Profits. We are very excited to come up with every time better and more interesting topics. And as Federico mentioned, we're going to talk today about biocomputing, which is something not many people know about. So we are very glad to have a, an, expert about, an expert among us. Federico, can you tell us a little bit more about our expert? Our expert is a very, very motivated person, the Dr. Tony McCaffrey. He's a computer scientist in the United States with two degrees, one in computer science and one in cognitive psychology. I met him when he was speaking about an interesting topic about brainstorming. He created many things. And this is one of those topics that I was very let's say, excited to know more. But this time, since our project is about technology, we are going to go into a more important topic that is biocomputing. But maybe the doctor can give us an introduction about himself and tell us more about him. Uh, yeah, so as uh, Frederico said, I went between computer science and cognitive psychology. I was first in computer science and in artificial intelligence. And I had some big questions about artificial intelligence and where it was going. So I decided to switch fields and um, study intelligence and problem solving from the human perspective, cognitive psychology. And then one of the things I did was come back and integrate them together. And I have developed this online platform in which um, AI programs and humans and machine learning program can work all together and overcome, help overcome each other's weaknesses. So I'm all, after I got that kind of figured out and, um, and that project behind me, then I, I started looking for the next uh, big thing, the mysterious future of computing. And that's when I started thinking hard about biocomputing. So you think that biocomputer might be the next big thing? Uh, yeah, it's it's right now it's uh, the the most quantum computing is what everybody thinks about these days as yes. the future of computing. And so I first investigated that, and I found that um, I did a little experiment. And so I was going to publish a paper on quantum computing and something else I was working on. And I needed some assistance understanding one of the algorithms, quantum algorithms. Mm -hmm. And so I went on LinkedIn and I contacted 70 people yeah. who had quantum programmer, quantum physicist in their, in their profile description. And yeah. none of them could help me. Oh, wow. So uh, help explain it. 
I think there's some people out there who can. So my conclusion was maybe there's it's so unintuitive that there's just a few geniuses, gurus who can actually make these programs and everybody else kind of tweaks them and implements them and makes small modifications. Mm-hmm. So I thought I came upon biocomputing and I said, um, this is less known, but it may in the long run have the biggest potential for um, the future of computing. Yes. Well, yeah, this is quite a very new topic. And I think that most of us are not aware of what it actually means. So, Dr. Tony, could you please explain us what is biocomputing? Okay, yeah, so I'm going to talk about two facets of it. One is mm-hmm. which um, st- storing using DNA to store data, and the other facet, that's somewhat known, but I, there's a big future in that, I believe. And then what's hardly known at all is mm-hmm. uh, using living cells as the hardware or biological cells or wetware per performing computation and can you do useful computational work wow like the traveling salesman problem or the shortest distance between two locations or factoring can you do use what we humans would say useful computational work with the the little machines that are working inside the cell so if you if it's okay i'd like to talk about the the DNA storage aspect first, mm-hmm. yeah, and then yeah. get on to um, the other one that's less known. So, initially, I I'm just amazed. This is also very gives me a lot of awe and wonder. Is that what what has nature given us? It's given us the the code of life, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. These four bases that put in different combinations make enzymes and then proteins and they make us. And But I think, and a lot of people agree, that nature has given us so much more. This little <laughs> DNA strand within us is could be the, the future way that we, um, you know, record all our data. Because, here's some facts. So, I watched an interesting TED Talk, mm-hmm. and the the person giving the TED Talk, Dina Zelensky, she held a little vial between her two fingertips, so it was very small. And she said, all the movies ever produced could easily be encoded in the DNA in this little vial that fit between her fingertips. Oh, and that just blew me away because uh, I didn't do the cu- the calculation for how many <laughs> gigabytes or whatever that would be, but that's an incredible amount. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah, when you convert to binary, you could store a few gigabytes in one cell uh, in the DNA strand, and the human body has 30 million... 30, excuse me, 30 trillion cells. (laughs) And uh, so some calculations just 
these are such big numbers. One gram of DNA could store 215 million gigabytes. Okay, wow. not one gigabyte, 215 million gigabytes. Wow. And the DNA storage lasts a long time. Uh, the best estimates that are that it's uh, could last a couple a hundred thousand years before it deteriorates. Um, so currently, we we can store data, but we keep updating it. So I don't uh, the reader. We don't floppy disks. I can't read a floppy disk anymore. I don't mm-hmm. know anybody who has a floppy disk reader. Yeah. <laughs> and CDs are, I, I guess I can still read a CD, but we keep updating our technology. So the yeah. data might be there, but we're losing <laughs> the machines to read that data are getting out of, uh, you know, getting out of step. Or, exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, the one, one reason I'm really excited about DNA storage is that currently server farms consume, they consume so much energy mm-hmm. and they produce so much heat. And it's amazing to compare data being stored on a server with the energy consumption and the heat production yes. versus the energy needed to keep this little cell alive and inside it is a couple gigabytes of data. I mean, it's, it's, um, so that's one reason environmentally, I think it's an amazing um, future for DNA storage. Now, currently, mm-hmm. um, we, it DNA storage could, has been, uh, could only be used really for archival, like long-term storage, mm-hmm. where you don't have to access it very often. Yeah. Uh, because when you, at, our reading capability is, of the DNA is pretty slow at this time. But of course, I think that will, and that will uh, get faster and faster as we go forward. So. And, and how do you think we can create this, let's say, artificial DNA? Because this is something that that's, that I'm curious to know. Right. Right. So we have the ability to uh, read DNA, to write it, as in to put the bases together and create a DNA strand mm-hmm. artificially. And we also have the ability to edit DNA. And so we can do everything we need to. And the technology for it, the acronym, don't ask me what it, I forget how what it stands for, CRISPR. 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 And basically they found a way to kind of trick a bacteria to go in uh, at the very precise location of the DNA strand by matching a pattern and cut the DNA. So, and then you can add more segments uh, of it. So you can edit it at different locations inside the strand. Now the person, the people who uh, invented CRISPR technology just, you know, recently won a Nobel prize for their work. 
and it's got so many applications um, in medicine, in, um, yeah, in, you know, helping people improve their health, uh, in creating vaccines, in all kinds of things. But I'm more interested in, because I'm a computer scientist at heart, Kind of the computer yeah. science implications of doing this. So I don't know what it would look like. Will he have some kind of little um, thing on your laptop inside that has a little housing where it holds uh, some living cells, uh, bacteria cells, and make sure they have the right environment and enough food to survive, and then... <laughs> And then you store your DNA if it's attached to your laptop. I I don't know what it's going to look like. Or is he going to have a little bacteria farm yeah. <laughs> on your desk? I, I, yeah, I can't envision that right now, what it's actually going to look like. But and, and Dr. Tony, I am very curious about your personal experience because you have you have told us already like about the concepts and mm. how you were contacting people on linkedin and also about these technologies like the the crispr that is used for uh, dealing with the dna but have you have you been working professionally or have you been in touch with this biocomputing stuff let's say at a at an academical level or is it all uh, theory at the time? Right. So I did about uh, four months of reading about, you know, everything from getting a book on genetics for dummies. <laughs> okay. So right. to relearn my biology that I didn't think I'd ever use again, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So four months of it was just theory of reading as much as I could about um, the general um, biology of the cell so I could start to understand um, how DNA could be written, how it could be edited, and things like this. Now, uh, the next phase is I've talked to online a number, they call themselves synthetic biologists. Synthetic, Yeah, so not the biologists and synthetic, and then they want to program. They use these words. They want to program the cell to do this thing or that thing. And so they are studying, okay, if this DNA sequence will trigger the cell um, to do amazing things, like to produce a microorganism that will produce this vaccine. Or mm-hmm. this DNA sequence will trigger the cell to produce a little microorganism that can turn methane, a greenhouse gas, into oxygen. Mm. So they they use this compute. They say the cell computes, and they mean something uh, different than computer scientists say. But there's a lot of similarities. They're trying to change the code of this biological machine or system so that it produces things on the output that are useful to them or helpful for us. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, so my next step after that, after conversing with this, is I would like to move into this industry and um, contribute to it more. If they like, uh, I'm thinking of writing some grants or uh, you know applying to some of these companies that are combining computer science and um, yeah biology together. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very interesting like what you were saying. I'm wondering, do you think that we are going to be able to use this technology to let's say to to make how to say it, to terraform Mars in a way? Because <laughs> right now the target is trying to terraform that planet, but we have only CO2 and we need oxygen to live. And from my let's say from my understanding, because I wanted to be an astronomer, the easiest mm-hmm. way will be to collide several asteroids from the belt to try to make some water or to try mm, to produce right. something. Yeah, I watched a uh, very interesting TED Talk by Dan Gibson, who has the company Synthetic Genomics. So synthetic making okay, and yes. has to do with the gene genome, the genetic material. And... His company is very on the forefront, and they have just recently come out with what's called a digital-to-biological converter. And they can send their machine a file, and it has all the bases and the jars, you know, the DNA bases. And it produces, it writes, (laughs) and connects the bases in a in a particular order so it becomes a dna strand and then their idea well this is real they can do this that that they can produce a gene a dna strand and create a bioorganism that you know would create produce oxygen or produce medicine or produce food now the new thing is is that uh, for future pandemics, uh, Dan's idea, which is r- going to be real, it's real now, it can happen. They can, uh, they made this printing, like a 3D printing machine. Yeah. This, they call it a DBC, di- Digital to Biological Converter. And in their lab, they might have the DNA sequence needed to produce an organism that produces um, a vaccine. And they'll send that digital file across the world to where the outbreak is happening. And if they have a, I'll call it a bio 3D printer over there, they can start producing the vaccine on site. Okay? So that's real. All right? Then we move to the next step, which could happen, but it's a little more science fiction at the moment, where we send these uh, DBCs, these 3D bioprinters, we send them ahead of us humans to Mars, okay? Yeah. And they start using the resources of Mars, and then we send a digital file. Oh, we're going to take this thing that's in the atmosphere of Mars, and we're going to convert it to pure oxygen and you make the supplies or the food or the medicine or even you're talking about building materials biologically printed building materials and so when humans arrive they don't have to carry all this stuff with them 
it's made on the planet. Now, the next science fiction step is what Frederico said, is if you sent enough of these uh, printing devices, I guess you could start to terraform the planet and convert the atmosphere itself. Wow. But he's talking about, you know, producing the oxygen and in tanks mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. we would have resources. But the next, you know, logical step would be to terraform, I think. So it it's amazing where we're at that we can send these these printers are are fairly small and they can be sent to places that need to produce a medicine or a vaccine quickly. Mm-hmm. But we're just just by extending your imagination, all of a sudden we're moving toward terraforming a planet. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And, and Dr. Tony, is this digital biological converter, the 3D printer, is something real already? Yeah. Or yes. Yes, it's real. Incredible. So I I think the I'm not I haven't heard of its being used during this pandemic. You hear about All the vaccines are being, you know, sh- shipped on huge planes mm-hmm. flying here and there. Mm-hmm. But uh, God help us, the next pandemic, I think th- these machines are real and they will be they will come into wide use um, during the next global situation. And we'll be sending files around and they'll be making the vaccine on on site. Site, yeah, that, that it sounds very useful. Right? Yeah, it's incredibly useful and uh, visionary on his part. It's, it sounds something like very unique. And I'm, let's say, I got like another kind of science fiction question. That sure. Is, do you think that we will be able, using biocomputing to clone dinosaurs like in Jurassic Park? Yeah. And why I'm asking this? <laughs> Because what happens is, from my knowledge, that you have the DNA and the DNA deteriorates after, like I think, like five million years. So... Even if we take the, let's say, the insect or the mosquito, what it has inside is useless to, to duplicate any being. Do you think we will be able to, with biocomputer, to reorganize properly and to clone, not necessarily dinosaurs, I don't think anyone would like to have a T-Rex in their grave. <laughs> grave. <laughs> if, yeah, if the DNA is, um, has not deteriorated, then it might be possible, yeah, it, then it could be possible, yeah, to uh, recreate the creature. Uh, the, the oldest DNA recovered so far uh, is, I have it on here, is um, a mammoth that was frozen in Siberia, and they were able to recover DNA that was 1.2 million years old. Now... I don't think the DNA is in good enough condition, or maybe parts of it are, but not enough of it mm-hmm. uh, to actually recreate that that animal. But these are questions that are not... Uh, they used to be complete science fiction, but now they're... Do you ask, is it science fiction anymore? And you go, I, um, I guess it still is for particular reasons, but we're getting closer and closer, you know. Yes, but all of this sounds very surreal. But have you watched the movie I, Robot? 
Dr. Tony. Oh, yes. Uh, the one uh, with Will Smith. Yes, yes, that one. That one. Do you think yeah. that, that with following the, the same line with the science fiction, do you think that biocomputers can help us will build like robots, such as the ones that we see in that movie? So in that movie, was the, was the robot part metal and and then part biology was it a was it a combination i don't remember the details of the movie i'm not sure also but but i think it, it was like that that it, it had parts uh, bio biological parts as well and okay like it had the ability to to actually learn by itself just as yeah. like something like machine yeah. learning so there are all kinds So this opens up a big, um, all kinds of ethical questions. And oh, so yeah. a after, um, there's been, uh, the people who won the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, they started a movement where all uh, biological scientists cannot, <laughs> cannot try these things. A moratorium where they say, no, we're going to pause and we're not going to try these things until we think through all the ethical issues. So that's that said, they're trying to be very, very careful. But that said, Edgar, uh, yes, uh, we have the potential to edit the human genome so that Um, we could try to make uh, parts, organs, or uh, the brain to try to make it um, smarter, uh, better memory, um, better pattern, uh, better at pattern recognition. We we have the potential to start meet, you know, making edits and trying them out, which would nature would call a mutation. Uh, to try to create these things, create and improve our abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, it's exciting, and it's also it's very scary. Yes. So we, I'm glad that the Nobel Prize winners have put a uh, a stoppage, uh, oh, and the yeah. scientific community agrees until we think through the ethical issues. We We don't. Nobody in the scientific community they will go there supposedly. Supposedly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, supposedly. Yeah, the the thing is that, well, like let's say that supposedly I will say it will depends on the scientists that are the people that are maybe the people who are more known but not the ones that are in the background. <laughs> but thinking in something else, um, I have a question. What are your thoughts about quantum computing? And why do you think we put so much effort on this area when biocomputing bio seems more, let's say, more important? It seems like something that we can really create amazing things like the digital biological converter and, well, a lot of incredible right. stuff. Well, let's see. Uh, our quantum computing, um, the first quantum theories came out we'll say in the 1920s. And um, so the notion, and there, it's so strange how 
they work. Uh, so to take, you know, computers work with bits and then a qubit, a quantum mm-hmm. bit, uh, a, a bit can be in two states in a normal computer and a quantum bit yeah. can be in those states simultaneously. It can be both one and zero simultaneously. And then if you have a longer thing, um, say eight bits, it can be in two to the eighth um, states simultaneously. So people, by our normal way of thinking, they said, oh my gosh, it was originally thought that every algorithm could be sped up in uh, with a quantum computer. So people got excited pretty early after they realized this. And quantum... I I ask my uh, friends who are not scientists, everybody knows something about uh, quantum mechanics. Oh, that's that weird stuff where (laughs) it doesn't act like we are normal-sized world, right? Yes. And biocomputing, is it hasn't gotten the press yet. I think it will. It doesn't got the publicity yet. True. I guess that's one thing I would I'd hope um, scientific journalists and myself, I I, maybe I can help make it a little more known, the potential. Mm -hmm. Um, And let's see, I I don't remember the year that the DNA strand was first. The shape of it was first figured out by Crick and Watson. I forget the year of that. I think it was later than the 1920s, uh, 40s or 50s, maybe 60s. I don't know. Somewhere in the 40s and 50s. I could be wrong. We'll have to check, fact check me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then the so people knew, okay. That's the core of who we are. We got this coding inside us that gets replicated and the instructions are followed and it builds things. But it didn't click that we could, we were a long ways from the beginning of being able to program it, to control it in some way, to edit it. And that's only happened in, in recently. CRISPR, oh my gosh, when did that happen? 2017. Oh, so yeah. that was four years ago. Four years, yes. And so four years ago that we could edit the actual DNA strand accurately. Um, before, not too much before that, uh, you know, re- reading it, we just, um, within this century, at the beginning of the century, we finally mapped out the human genome for the first time. So we were able to read it completely, all two gigabytes of information, so it's kind of uh it's it's all the discoveries we needed to move forward in biocomputing are have just happened in the last um 15 years, 20 years, you know. So yeah. it's not uh, it's not as well known by the public. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a very recent uh yeah, field of study still. And as you mentioned like it, it it doesn't have the coverage of the media yet. So, right. Uh, and I think a lot of people are really 
scared of the ethical questions. Yes. I mean, can you choose your baby's eye color and go in and edit their eye color? And if they have um, a condition, do you, uh, such as Down syndrome, do you go in and edit that and get rid of it? Or do you let the person Down syndrome uh, be born and have a you know a life with with mm-hmm. that condition? Yes. Uh, and so there's lots of ethical questions. And then the next ethical question is, if a government wanted to um, only have people with a certain skin tone or a oh. certain hair color. And they only allow people, they have, <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be, there's lots of really, um, and people are scared of that, and rightly so. And so we have to really th- think about that carefully and not let people with bad ideas, um, you know, take over this technology. So there's a lot there, but... I recently have thought that it is the benefits um, can potentially could so outweigh Mm -hmm. these ethical issues if we keep them under control Mm -hmm. that I think it's it's really exciting. I envision it since I'm a science fiction writer. Yeah, Ah. (laughs) we get this. We get this alien computer that is biological and there's all these things in the cell, the DNA strand and the mitochondria and all these processes going on, building enzymes. And and we have to figure out how this amazing little machine or factory, because it makes things all the time, how it works. And so it's such potential there and it's an exciting Tech, you know, for research to figure out how this thing works and can we control it and do good things with it. Yes, I think we're stepping right now into a very complicated topic with these ethical issues, especially because things are not only black and white usually. They have like more gradients of gray in the middle. So, for instance, whenever you mention this about changing the color, uh, the color of the eyes of the babies, I, I just remembered... I live in the Czech Republic, Dr. Tony, and I, okay. just, re- I, just, I just remember I saw a couple uh, who were looking for a sperm donator, but the sperm donator, they had a list of characteristics of oh, the sperm donator, yeah. like, like tall, blonde, this color of eyes, and like do not have any, uh, any diseases in the family, running in the family, etc. You know, so that's also something ethical but on the other hand if you think about it for instance let's say that you discover that you your baby has some vision problems Mm. but you have the technology to change that and to give that baby the possibility to have a normal life so will you do it right so it's like a very very complicated issue with this uh, uh with the ethical part i mean yeah, it could improve the quality of life of your child, or it could be used for to enforce a kind of racism, you know. Also. So it's 
But I think every, unfortunately, I think every tool, I mean, a, a compute, the ability to program, a person can make a wonderful new, um, you know, platform for people to communicate like Skype, or they could use their abilities to hack, you know. Mm-hmm. And so every tool, I guess, could be used for good or bad. So it's... uh. But these are really um, tough issues about what yeah. it means to be human and how much <laughs> have control. Yeah, at the at the end of the day, I think it depends on on all of us how how we use it. Right. And Dr. Tony, you you mentioned that you think that the benefits can outweigh all of the possible bad sides of biocomputing. So could you please like kind of summarize what what are the benefits that you see in bio- oh yeah yeah it's i <clears throat> the benefits that we know of are that we envision the cell um as a some people use the metaphor of it's a little factory okay mm-hmm. And the, a benefit could be it can turn a greenhouse gas like methane into oxygen, all right? Yeah. Um, so there could be benefit with climate. Uh, you could um, use the cell not to, okay, to create a vaccine, okay? Uh, yeah. Or oh, a medicine. That's a good one. And with Dan Gibson's machine, you could send the digital file over there and have them create the actual medicine. So, so the um, so that yeah, that's amazing. Also, um, so as far as uh, even just being able to read your own your own uh, genetic code and say, okay, your family. Uh, you particular have a disposition to heart disease, mm. or you could find out in your twenties, so you could start to take care better care of yourself, so that when you reach fifty and sixty, um, that can you know you can help prevent that. So having the knowledge of some people don't want to know. I I want to, uh, but. Some people say, I want to know what my I'm prone to. Am I prone to getting dementia when I'm older? And how can I intervene early and stop that? So that's at, not at the biocomputing level. It's just the ability to read the DNA sequence. To read the DNA, yes. Um, and then to write DNA, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We could... Uh, you know, the way we would do it before, like if you're dog uh, breeding and a new um, breed of dogs, all right, mm-hmm. we would do it the old, like nature would do it. You know, you would uh, take this this type of dog and this type of dog and they would have puppies yeah. and then they would go forward. And I guess you could just um, speed up that process where it might take four or five generations of puppies to get this new breed that you wanted or a new trait in the dog. 
And now you might be able to do it um, if you understand all the, D- the DNA sequences and what they mean. You might be able to do it in one gen- one generation or something, you know. Um, I don't know, think we can imagine all the benefits right now, I, but I think the, those ones of ours, our own health, predicting our future problems, uh, editing, uh, yeah, possibly editing our own DNA to help us become um, less prone to certain diseases. Um, okay, I, I'm not sure I can imagine them all. Uh, you know, uh, there's so many. It's still so young, really. And, and do you know what kind of technologies are, are used to build these tools? Is it the typical, let's say, C-sharp, Java, or the common things that we know? Oh, wow. Or, or they use something completely different? Yeah, so on the completely digital side, they... Uh, yeah, I don't know uh, the format in which the DNA code is uh, represented, and I'm sure they're using C++, Java, maybe a little <laughs> Python, to actually write the code that manipulates these files, um, does the algorithms to um, try to read the DNA code and you're right. So we're using um, all our all the current computing skills and the normal programming languages you have, but then we're also uh, they're connected to. You tell this other machine to <laughs> put together the DNA strand, and that that's a whole other technology. But you're you're using your computer skills to write the code to instruct it how to do this, you know, these little yeah. manipulations. Um, so, go ahead. So do you think we're going to build, like, let's say, our own, how to say it, our own in masses computers that will be, let's say, bio in, I don't know, the next 100 years, is replacing what we have in, to turn it into something different? No, my imagination says that there will always be um, a hybrid where normal silicon chips and the normal kind of computer and we type in code interfaces with some biological thing and instructs it to actually do things and to create this code. So I otherwise... (laughs) Well, well, for one thing, the DNA strand is so small that um, <laughs> we we can't manipulate it directly. We have to have these layers to get down there, and so I think we'll always be um, we'll we'll be using C plus plus. I don't I don't know. We'll come up with other languages, computer language, but we'll always be a there'll always be a nor, uh, more electronic or or silicon-based interface Mm -hmm. to the biological part. Uh, That's my my vision, but uh, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Before, now, I want to tell you a little bit about some of my my research on a different type of um, um, 
algorithm that might be very efficient when it's put mm. into biocomputing. Is that all right to switch? Sure. I have other questions now. No, please go ahead, doctor. Okay. So, so the, the question I ask, since I'm not a biologist, but I'm learning as much as I can, is basically the cell is a little factory and it can produce things. Uh, you know, it can produce things in the world. But sometimes, normally as computer scientists, we think about, well, can it do computational work? Like, yeah. find the shortest distance between two locations or the traveling salesman problem or these more classic ones. Can it help us do that? Or is it, are there yet unsolved pro or unimagined problems it's, it's going to be better at? So that's what, why. So what I've done is try to, um, I read a lot of, a number of papers where they try to implement in the cell an, a logic gate, like an AND gate. Two molecules come down and they're both there, so this and that, and then it releases something, another molecule, Okay. Or mm -hmm. an OR gate or a NOR gate. So these okay, things. Yeah, got it. So that's one way to try to turn the cell into a computer, okay, that we would recognize because it has these logic gates, all right, these mm -hmm. circuits. But I'm going off in a very different direction because... I think we're arbitrarily constraining the cell and trying to force it to be, to act like um, an electronic computer or a silicon-based computer. And I say, is there another way that we can leverage, let the cell be its, let the cell be more of itself and not constrain it like this and um, do computing? So... I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an algorithm okay. that is more efficient than the known electronic algorithms. Yeah. And then we're gonna I'm gonna ask the question, can we get the cell to do this? All right? Okay. So okay. this one is well known. I have others that I haven't published yet, so I'm not gonna give you the details of those. But this one has out is out there. And okay. so I'm gonna share it with you. Okay, so suppose you were to find you wanted to know the shortest distance between two locations. Okay, mm -hmm. and here here's a way you could do it. Sounds silly, but here's a way you could do it. You could take your map and you could make a string put a string model of your map. So between every two locations on the map, you have a string, and you tie a knot where the cities are. Yeah. Right. And so at the end, you have this, uh, This um, my hands are go gesturing all over the place. You have this string map, a version of your map. Yes. So on the real map, uh, if you needed to, um, it's just a scaled down version of, you know, the real world. It's, 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 Okay, does that, does that? Yes, that so, makes sense. Here's what you could do. Um, 
if you wanted to find the shortest route, um, I let's see, I don't know towns in your countries very well, so I'll I'll stick to the United States. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, the shortest route between uh, Boston and um, Philadelphia. Okay. Mm-hmm. You and you made a map of that with string and knots. You could just pinch the knot that represented Philadelphia and pinch the knot that represented Boston and pull the string until it becomes tight. Mm-hmm. And that root, that, sh- that first string that becomes tight, you could go and say, okay, that's the shortest route between Boston and Philadelphia. And now if I try to trace it, oh, I have to go to this city and take a get on this highway and then I have to go to this city and to, and it's, it, it is a way to find the shortest route between, um, two locations. Does that, does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. It does. Now who in the, who would be crazy enough (laughs) to actually build a string model of your, um, of a map and go through this because we have, uh, we have, paper maps, and we have all these wonderful algorithms that do it in the electronic way Yeah, that, you know, try out different routes and then eventually come to the shortest one, okay? Exactly. Now, when I do uh, the efficiency analysis, the complexity analysis, mm-hmm. um, the number of steps required to build the map and then to do this pulling thing until it's tight, that becomes more efficient the fewer number of steps, not faster, but the fewer number of steps to perform, it becomes more efficient that way after 10 cities are on the map. Okay? Yeah. So this algorithm is some sense uh less complex than um than the electronic ones that search out many variations on the ma- on because the, they start from the target and they go out and kind of uh cascade and gradually get to the destination so the as far as counting the number of steps this is more efficient However, we don't have a string computer <laughs> mm-hmm. that can do this fe- quickly, so it's ridiculous to think about it, okay? Yeah. However, <laughs> imagine if I could uh, program a cell to make a network of proteins. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha! Uh-huh. Network of proteins that are connected in the way that the map is. Okay? Uh-huh. Then I would have to come up with another biological process to uh, take the protein network and pull it, try to extend it or pull it apart and then retrace the shortest route that becomes tight first. Okay, yes. So 
that's where my research is right now. Can we, um, and this would work for a lot of um, network problems. Um, can we create a protein network that emulates um, some network we're interested in and then do measurements upon it and possibly we could come up with uh, it be, not only it'd be fewer steps, but it could become faster than what the electronic computer is doing when you got to a hundred cities or yeah. 50 cities or a thousand cities. Right. So that's what I'm looking into. It's pretty wild. It's pretty like um, very futuristic, but it's very different than what a lot of others are trying to force the cell and make logic gates for it to imitate the electronic computer. And I'm saying, no, mm-hmm. let's, let's, if pro, if it naturally makes protein networks, let's try to make networks that are useful to us and um, get extract the information because once the net protein network is built, the second time you use it, suppose I want to go um, to another location on the map. I want to go from Charlotte, North Carolina to Chicago. Okay. The, the network, the map is already built, and all I have to, I don't have to build it up again. I just have to go and find the knot or the location that represents Charlotte and Chicago and pull it apart and then retrace that shortest route. The The second time I run this algorithm, it is incredibly, it's more efficient, or fact could be, it's incredibly more efficient than any other, than anything an electronic computer can do. Because the electronic computer would have to start over. Oh, I'm starting in Charlotte, and I'd have to explore all the possible roads out of Charlotte. Yes. And the roads out of those cities, and ro- and it it would have to repeat its whole algorithm again. Exactly. While by by the biological the protein network, I got the map built. All mm-hmm. I have to do is do that second step. Exactly. So see, so I'm a crazy man. I'm thinking about <laughs> these very futuristic things, and I found some. I found some, uh, the, the reason this might be really uh, poss- important is that I have found one of these physical algorithms using string for, excuse me, um, a problem that's called the subset sum problem. And, subset sum, yes. Yeah, and that problem is basically given a list of numbers can you find a, a group of them, a subset of them that add up to a particular number that you're interested in? Oh, I see. Okay. Now, in an electronic computer, the best known algorithms are what they call NP-complete. There, there is no efficient algorithm to solve this problem. Okay. However, when I do this in my little string model, I have found uh, a string model version 
that is faster, more efficient, I should say. I got confused. More efficient in the number of steps than the best-known electronic algorithm. Mm -hmm. So I'm finding these uh, algorithms that if we could get the cell and the protein networks to do this, it would be... uh, we'd find faster and more efficient algorithms for these really hard problems, like uh, the subset sum problem, and there's no efficient solution to it. Known. So, what do you think of that? <laughs> Dr. Tony, I, I am quite impressed by what we have just spoken. And for me, I have to say that I admire you because you're following... A different approach you're challenging actually what the other scientists out there are doing by instead of implementing gates uh, the logical gates I mean right you you are right now trying to make use of the already built-in capabilities of the cells in the form of creating the networks of proteins and it sounds very innovative to me it sounds very innovative, and, and I would like to see that we can actually use it for real-life applications, such as the ones that you mentioned, this, uh, the SSP problem. Yep. And something that was not that clear to mm-hmm. me, and maybe maybe you, I will ask you to elaborate on that, uh, Dr. Tony. So what is this MP-complete mm. uh, problem? Right. Okay, so, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and Frederico, you can chime in, too, uh, if you want, because I'm trying to explain it for a more general audience Mm -hmm. and not get too technical. But basically, when you design an algorithm, like the algorithm that searches from one city and try to find the shortest route to the other, Yes. Uh, there's a fee- you analyze it and it's called compl- you know computational complexity. How complex is this algorithm? Exactly. And and basically, um, how many steps do you need? And as the network grows, as you add more and more cities, what is the formula that calculates how efficient it becomes? So. Mm-hmm. In the, um, so let me see. So if it's in, if it's P, there's two cl- major classes that I'll talk about. Okay. P are the efficient algorithms. We found something that is very uh, efficient. Well, it's pretty efficient. Okay. Okay. And NP stands <laughs> is are the class of that are we don't have an efficient algorithm to solve it. Uh-huh. It takes a long mm-hmm. time. And for example, uh, yeah, for example, um, if the formula is two to the nth power, yes, I have seen those. Yeah. All right, then two to the first is two. Two to the second power is two times two is four. But then you get, it starts growing very quickly. Yes. So two to the hundredth is is huge. Two times two times two, a hundred times. 
That would be considered um, an NP problem because as you increase N, mm -hmm. the algorithm takes more expe exponentially more and more time to solve. And so for I big, see. for huge mm -hmm. versions of the problem, if N were 100 or 200, it would take basically, it's impractical to run. It may take hundreds of years. It may yeah. take thousands. It may take the length of the universe for better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we don't, like, we don't like those algorithms that grow exponentially, and they're in the class called NP. Okay. We like algorithms that are um, R and P. So P is stands for polynomial, and mm -hmm. the simplest, the best kind of polynomial one would be N. If uh, if if you're dealing with one thing, it requires one step. If you're dealing with two things, it requires two steps. If you're dealing with ten things, because it requires ten steps, that would be the best. Because um, as the problem goes in size. The number of steps required grows very um, um, man in a manageable manner. Like uh, it, in this case, is linear. More common, you might be five n. Okay, yeah. You have one thing. Five times one is five. Takes five steps. If there's two things, five times two is ten. Ten steps. If it takes a hundred things. Five times a hundred is five hundred. It's not growing that fast, so the yeah, algorithm yeah. is. We'll call it efficient, and we like those algorithms. Mm -hmm. We don't like okay. the other ones that. So, the one I described to you for the subset sum problem, mm -hmm. it's the calculation is two to the n, and as so that means as the list gets longer. Uh, Mm -hmm. The number yeah. of steps required is two to the whatever the, the length of the list is, two to the mm -hmm. end, two times two times that many times. And so oh, it becomes wow. very inefficient and it's put in the NP class. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now the 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 last thing is it's called NP complete. And so okay. there's there's a group of problems that if you could find an efficient solution algorithm for one of them you should be able to find an efficient algorithm for all of them they're all related to each other this np complete mm -hmm. group so that solving one of them efficiently would lead to a efficient solution for every one because they're kind of dealing with the same problem so underneath so my little string solution is is faster than every than the electronic algorithms for all those in NP complete. So if I can get this to run on a in a cell and be very efficient, then I could uh, create other ones that are slight versions of it and solve all these tough problems that don't currently have efficient algorithms for them yeah and, and I'm, I'm also very impressed by everything that you have told us doctor I, I have even any idea about all these possibilities but let's suppose that I am new how how 
can I get started? Like how, after listening to you, how, where, where should I go? For example, what kind of books do you suggest me or how to get started? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you're anything like me, I, I just had to start out with uh, genetics for dummies to, re to <laughs> review yeah. all the things I learned in sixth and seventh grade, you know, mm -hmm. and, and uh, all the things about it. Yeah. About what's inside the cell. So you can, you have to start learning about um, what the cell is doing. And then um, there are a number of very good Ted talks by Dina Zelensky about DNA storage. And so they all have a little biology lesson inside these TED Talks. And another one by Dan Gibson, who made this uh, bio printer. Oh, They're nice. wonderful TED Talks to start saying, well, how can we leverage and use the amazing abilities inside the cell to do good work? Mm -hmm. Um the stuff I'm doing is, yeah, then, so, um, the stuff I'm doing is uh, not known yet, I hope. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, let's see, what's uh, another one, another big name? Uh, let me look up on it. I think there's another great uh, textbook. Yes. Uh, about by another author gosh i i believe it's i i might be wrong george west i'll try to figure out if that's correct before we leave um so most people probably interested in this will be um computer scientists who have already the programming knowledge and the background knowledge from the computer science side um, who want to say what's the what's the potential of this biocomputer? And they'll have to, um, you know, Google biocomputing and then re refresh their memory of all the things they learned in biology class and start mm -hmm. looking at it and saying, "Oh my gosh, it's like a little factory, and maybe we can use it to." make great things, and then maybe it's like a little computer, but a very different computer that doesn't use logic gates. Maybe we can use it to do to solve these tougher problems that involve networks and so forth in a different, very different way. So, um, yeah, I, did, I don't have at the top of my head good, a good suggestions yeah. other than to refresh <laughs> your biology knowledge and build on it from there. Um, the last thing I would say, I'd hope, um, my next phase after I've created like three or four of these crazy algorithms, that if we can get it into the working in the cell, it would be very efficient. My next phase is to contact, um, talk with more synthetic biologists and start moving into who would like to um, try this out. And yes. is it possible to do this with a protein network? And is it possible to do this with a, with these things? So I have to, 
um, that's my next move. And if anyone hears this who's in that field, they can contact me because I'd love to chat to try to make this real. And how you consider to try to reach Elon Musk? You know that he's constantly doing a lot of extreme experiments. <laughs> and, I w- and I wouldn't be surprised that he could give you the cash immediately or something like that. Uh, yeah, if he felt it, yeah. That's a great thing with um, if you can reach these very visionary, visionary billionaires, it's nothing for them to write a, a million dollar check and say, mm-hmm. oh, go try that. Exactly. You know, I, I would, that would be fantastic if I could uh, uh, get some money, grant money or money from a rich person to um, see if that's I can make this real because the benefits would be really big. Maybe a good idea would be to send him a tweet just to see what is his reaction. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised that he, he might reply. He's constantly thinking in this, in the, I, I don't say even the next big thing, but the next big thing in the next 10 years or even something like that. Oh, yeah. Quite a visionary. A visionary yeah. Quite an active mind. So, okay, I will do that. I, I'm, I said, nah, that's not going to work. But, I, Frederico, I'll, I'll try it. You convince me. Thanks. <laughs> Amazing. And I would just like to summarize the recommendations you just gave us, Tony, so our sure. audience can listen to them once again. So you mentioned genetics for dummies. You mentioned uh, tech talks about Dina Zelensky and yeah. also Dan Gibson, who is the creator of the bioprinter. Yeah. And the textbook, and we might need to double check this, uh, from George West. And this is right. about genetics. I'm, yeah, I'm looking it up right now to see if, because I have the the PDF of his document, and sorry, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, I I can't. I I mean, I can send it if I find yeah. it. I'll send it to you. You can put it up with with the um the podcast if you want, but I can't find it quickly. Sorry. Okay, no problem. We will add it in the description. Yes. All right, great. We'll add it in the description later. Uh, and now, Dr. Tony, as we usually do here in the Cyber Prophets, that's where we're prophets. We are trying to see how, how the future will look like. Now, we have already spoken, and this is a totally mind-blowing, very futuristic topic right from the beginning. So I think that we have been speaking about the future most of the time around here. But I would like to still ask you some some other questions. So okay. right now we have like our cell phones, our laptops and, and everything. Do you think that in the future biocomputing or better say like bio devices wow. will kind of replace what we have nowadays like bio laptops, bio bio phones or some <laughs> kind of devices? <laughs> Good question. Um, my imagination says that will always the biological portion of the computer will always be encased by more what we would say normal looking technology. Okay. Because we need an interface to this mic, this minute. Very, very tiny world. 
right? And yes. um, even for it to send information to us, we need this interface to go from this very small world up to our size world. And so I always imagined it. Um, how I always imagined it having a regular technology interface. However, I just thought of this, Edgar. I'm going to get really, really wild, futuristic. Okay. Wow. Yes. Okay. Ready. I I imagined in a, maybe a sci-fi um, story a man who has some very he's a spy he has some very secret uh, information and the police have uh, arrest you know are holding him and they're searching for the device that holds this information you know yes okay and. Mm -hmm. They can't find it because it's on this in a cell on the back of his hand. <laughs> okay. So there might be a biological little um, computers, we'll call them. Imagine they're put in in your body. I don't know. They mon yes. Maybe they monitor your bloodstream and they... When they detect a certain condition, they, you know, the organisms in their related produce, release some medication mm -hmm. or, and maybe there's a little um, silicon chip with them that communicates and you send information, you know, you send information to that chip and it uh, interacts with the, the, the biocomputer inside your body. Mm -hmm. And um, it can do some calculations for you. I, you know, yes, maybe, yeah, you could do this, the shortest distance between two cities, and you would need an interface. But the biocomputer is embedded in your body, or this biocomputer is specific to this algorithm, and this other one is specific to solving this algorithm efficiently. And so you have a whole set of them. And you have a little device um, that can communicate with the biocomputers that are placed in different parts of your body. And your body keeps them um, alive and gives them the nourishment they need and the energy they need to. How's that for a wild answer, huh? That's a very wild answer. Incredible. <laughs> well, it's something that, how to say it, I would like to see it. It, it seems something very interesting mm -hmm. that we, may, we might be able to see, I don't know, in the next, I don't know, 200 years or something like that. Yeah. And, and in your opinion, do you think that, I don't know, in the next 300 years or 100 years, or when do you see is your timeline that we could have this kind of biocomputer starting as a service? Because I think it will be like the oh, first wow. approach before going to the bio devices. Yeah. Yes. Oh, well, I'll tell you, the, the algorithms I have worked out, uh, you know, they could be become, oh, I like, yeah. Is that, you made up that term, Frederico, bio, bio sir, as bio, a service? Yes. Biocomputing as, I like it, I like it. So <laughs> biocomputing as a service could become a reality in the next, um, 
as soon you know five ten years or if I get a grant quickly from <laughs> reality in the next couple of years who knows um it's kind of like quantum computing uh IBM has made their quantum computer available so people can learn and you can write a short program and send it and it'll run it yeah. So that's basically quantum computing as a service. And so why not, Frederico, with your envision, we, why can't we have biocomputing as a service? And, and I think uh, if I get the, the, the grant money, it could happen a, you know, a year or two or three after I get the grant money. So I'm going to speculate it's going to some form of it will be happening on the next uh, five to ten years. And um, yeah, and that'll that'll be happen well before bio devices. But this this will be the next step. All right, buy biocomputing as a service. I love that. I love that. <laughs> I can see that you you're really working hard on this uh, biocomputing topic, Doctor Tony. And now I would like to ask you a question, but this is like more down to earth. Mm -hmm. So what we have now, all the possibilities, all the theory, and what we can do with the CRISPR, uh, with the CRISPR method for editing DNA. So my question is like, what is the next step in the development of biocomputing? Uh, the right next step. Right, right. Well, I just read an article yesterday about a, another process that can edit DNA, and it seems to be faster and more reliable. And uh, I think it was called Introns, I-N-T-R-O-N-S. Mm -hmm. I'd have to get, I'd have to, I need a biochip for my memory. I some of these names I can't remember <laughs> very well. Um, So I think the the uh, the next step for biocomputing and synthetic biology is to keep increasing the speed. Excuse me, at which you can read the DNA, write the DNA, and edit the DNA. Mm -hmm. Because uh, right now DNA storage is possible, but it's. I don't think it's going to be commercially. Uh, viable um, only for archiving purposes right now yeah. until you can read and write and edit more uh, faster yes. more quickly so I think that's the next step is to make all these processes uh, that we're doing faster and then there's so many other things that little machines or things, factories going on in the cell um, that, you know, I'm, I'm exploring protein networks, but, you know, there's other things <laughs> that I think people are going to say, oh, my gosh, the cell is doing that. We could, um, we could use that, and I don't know what those are. So I think there'll be more... Um, practical discoveries of the cell is doing this and we can leverage it to do something useful for us. The, not just DNA, 
not just protein, but other things in the cell, other processes are going on. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Tony. Without a doubt, I hope you will get that grant soon. I hope that your tweet will reach Elon Musk. And if your tweet doesn't reach you, hopefully one of our audiences is going to reach Elon Musk. And we need to become spammers to try to help you accomplish this biocomputing as a service. I, I really believe that your thoughts, your ideas can empower us to build a better future for everyone. Any final thoughts that you would like to add, doctor? Uh, just thank you very much. It's been a delight talking with both of you. And yes, I yeah, I'm ready to talk to potential grant or people with money and try to make the first um, make the first device that my theory is articulated. So thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you very much for everyone, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Where we keep prophesizing more technologies, and you can develop a better future with everything you're learning. See you the next time.